0: Our next topic, and the last of our metaphysical topics, is goodness. Now, right away, you might have an objection. If metaphysics, as we have been discussing it, is about the nature of what is, then you might think that goodness is not a topic in metaphysics, but instead a topic in ethics or morality. Putting it differently, this is okay. Is this thing? It's going. It's how, going. How can you tell? Oh. I touched it. Yeah. Okay. Putting it differently, you might think that the question of goodness isn't a question about the way things are, but about the way things should be. From the Thomistic perspective, that objection would be based on a serious mistake. Goodness is a central topic in metaphysics, and morality is, in fact, based on metaphysics. That's because the question of the way things are and the way things should be can't really be separated. The way things should be belongs to what they are. The topics to be covered in this lecture are these. First, is the distinction between good and bad objective? Or instead, is it just a matter of our subjective preferences? Second, are goodness and badness two different kinds of beings, two different properties? Or is that just altogether the wrong way to think about it? Third, what is the right understanding of goodness and badness? Fourth, what is the relationship between the goodness of something and the kind of thing that it is. So the goodness and nature. How are those related? Fifth, admittedly edging over into morality for a bit, what does it mean to talk about natural law? You've probably heard that. I mean, of course, you've heard that expression. Like, what is it? Sixth, how does a Thomistic understanding of goodness lead to a discrepancy between a natural law, morality, and a consequentialist? Morality. I just want to mention that because it seems important. Seventh, could all this possibly point to God? I'm pretty sure this is going to like point to a path that I don't think it's going to be taken this weekend. But it's just an interesting one to think about. But before doing any of that, I want to make two terminological comments. The first is about the word evil. Usually, in everyday English... This word expresses the idea that something is very, very bad. So we say that mass murderers are evil, but we don't say that jaywalkers are evil. The word also suggests that the badness isn't just extreme badness, but moral badness, wickedness. We don't say that a tree falling on a car is evil. Or if we do, we're joking. We're speaking as if the tree were a malevolent sinner, When we know that in truth, it's not really a sinner at all because trees lack free will and are not subject to moral evaluation. So that's the way we use the word in everyday English. But in philosophy, the word evil sometimes gets used for anything that's bad, whether or not it's very, very bad, and whether or not it has anything to do with moral agency. We say that having cancer is an evil and that having a tree fall on your car is an evil. Now, strictly speaking, I don't actually think there's a discrepancy between ordinary speech and philosophical speech in this case. When a tree falls on a car, philosophers don't say, that's evil. They say, that's an evil. Do you hear the little indefinite pronoun in there, an evil? I think that that would work in ordinary speech, Although, admittedly, it might sound a bit old-fashioned, sickness is one of the evils that afflict human life, you might say. But everyone would laugh at you. In this talk, I will try not to be confusing about this. But if you hear me say, for example, that being handicapped is an evil, please don't get angry and accuse me of saying that handicapped people are evil. (laughs) Those are very different claims. The second terminological point is this. I will sometimes use words like norm and normative. For example, I might say that the difference between good and evil is a normative difference. Normative, as I'll be using it, just means having to do with good and bad, good and evil, that sort of thing. So for example, sickness is a normative concept, because sickness is a kind of badness, or again, There are norms for animals that say they are supposed to have a certain amount of oxygen, a certain number of legs. Deviating from these norms is normatively significant because it brings badness. Adhering to these norms is also normatively significant because it brings goodness. But obviously, it has nothing to do with moral norms. So with that in hand, let us ask our first question. Is there an objective distinction between good and evil, between what's good and bad? Is it a distinction that's out there in the world, a distinction that we can discover or fail to discover? Or does the, or does the distinction really just amount to a matter of preference? Could it be that things aren't really good or bad in themselves, and that the difference is only the difference between things we like and things we don't like. Common sense, of course, says that the difference between what's bad and what's good is objective. Normative thinking is pervasive in ordinary life. And most philosophers would agree that there really is a difference between good and bad, even if they disagreed about the best way to understand that difference. But there is a line of philosophical thought that denies it a line of thought that says that out there in the world, there is no real objective difference between good and bad. Consider some remarks made by the 17th century Frenchman René Descartes, he of the cogito ergo sum fame. Descartes asks us to think of two clocks, one that keeps good time and one that keeps bad time. It goes a bit too fast or a bit too slow. Descartes points out that both of these clocks obey the laws of nature equally well. The one whose minute hand goes around in exactly one hour obeys the laws of physics, but so does the one whose minute hand goes around in one hour and one-tenth of a second. Did I say that right? Yeah? Okay. The clocks are constructed differently and one of them is constructed wrong, but the wrong here only comes in when we consider the perspective of someone who wants the clock to operate in a certain way. If someone wanted the minute hand to go a little bit slower, then the slow clock would be the correctly functioning clock. There's nothing objective about it. It's just a matter of how you want the clock to go. Now extend this a bit further, Think of blood. When your blood flows through your arteries and veins, around and around, it obeys the laws of physics. But so does blood that flows out through a hole in your vein and onto the floor. In both cases, the laws of physics are being obeyed equally well. And the laws of chemistry are obeyed equally well, whether you eat pizza or poison. So this suggests that there is no difference between good and bad in the world and that the difference is only in our preferences. It's important to point out, I want to be fair, Descartes does make remarks that seem intended to temper this conclusion. He says that when we think of the human body only as a machine, then the sort of analysis that I've been describing here applies. He also says, however, that when we consider the body insofar as it is joined to the soul, then that sort of analysis does not apply. And then there really is a difference between good and bad, healthy and sick. But it's not clear how his argument is supposed to work. At least it's not clear to me. And in any case, the original idea, that kind of analysis, has a force of its own, regardless of what Descartes um, meant for it to have. There are definitely philosophers who hold that in all cases, all the time, the difference between the things we call good and the things we call bad is only that we don't like the ones we call bad, whereas we do like the ones we call good. Norms aren't out there to be discovered. They're imposed by us. The 18th century Scott David Hume, for instance, holds that you can't figure out, on the basis of a description of something, whether that something is good or bad. You can't, that is to say, figure out what ought to be on the basis of what is. Is never implies ought on this view. And to think otherwise is to fall into what is sometimes called the naturalistic fallacy. Indeed, Hume holds the difference between good and bad is really just the difference between pleasure and pain. Now, let's slow down a bit and do some logical sorting out. The core idea is that you can't figure out good and bad on the basis of the nature of what exists. You can examine your leg and notice that blood is escaping, but that doesn't tell you anything at all about whether it's good or bad. But from this core idea, you can go in at least two directions. One direction says that since you can't find the difference between good and bad, by studying the nature of things, you can't figure it out at all, because the nature of things is all there is to go on. So if you were uh, an advocate of naturalism in the sense of from the talk from last night, this would be your position. If you travel in this direction, you will end up saying that the difference between good and evil is an illusion or a projection of our preferences. Again, Normative differences won't be objective. They'll be subjective at best. But there is another direction you could travel in, one suggested by um, a 20th century Englishman, G.E. Moore. You could say that although we can't figure out the difference between good and bad by examining the nature of things, we can figure it out directly by a kind of intuition. Things aren't good because they have other properties, Properties that we can discover by inspection or examination. Instead, they just, they just are good. And we figure this out not by examining their natural properties, but by a sort of intuition. There are true normative differences to be found. They just aren't to be found by examining natural facts. Of these two directions of inquiry, I think the first one is plainly wrong. It just has to be false to hold that there's no difference between what's good and what's bad. The difference between courage and cowardice, or the difference between sickness and health, isn't just a matter of how you and I feel about things. The second direction, by contrast, is not plainly wrong, but it has the disadvantage of suggesting that goodness or badness are properties that are somehow divorced from the rest of reality. It suggests that norms aren't tied up with the natures of the things they are norms for. Now, if this whole weekend were devoted to ethical theory, we could spend some serious time on this. But it isn't. We can't. So without really doing it justice, I will leave this view behind so as to get to Aquinas' view. I'll leave the view behind, but not without making one last remark about it, And and my remark will also be a remark about the view that I've been contrasting it with. This last remark I want to make amounts to using a certain useful strategy. This is a strategy that gets, you can use this like all the time in philosophy and other places too. If you are considering a bunch of views and they all seem problematic, ask yourself, what do they all agree on? Sometimes that's where the problem lies. I would like to suggest that that's the case here. Consider the two views do disagree, of course. One of them holds that there's no objective difference between good and bad, and the other holds that there is an objective difference, but a difference that stands apart from any natural difference. But those two views agree on something. They agree that if there are real normative differences, Those differences are not based on the natures of things. The first view holds that there's no alternative to basing such differences on the natures of things, and therefore that there are no such differences. The second view holds that there is an alternative to basing those differences on the natures of things, and that there really are such differences. But the views agree in holding that the one place not to find normative differences is in the nature of things. That shared idea is one that Aquinas rejects. For him, the difference between good and bad is rooted precisely in the nature of things. To see this, however, is going to take a bit of time. So we're shifting to the second point here. I'm going to raise a question that might appear to be off-topic. There is evil in the world, obviously. Well, did God create everything or only some things? Of course, the right answer is that God is the creator of everything. But now we have a problem because if God created everything and some things are bad, like death from Ebola, just for example, then God created bad things. Augustine worried about this problem. At one stage in his life, his approach was that of the Manichees, who held that God not only created the good thing... Who, sorry, so Augustine at that time in his life held that God only created the good things, and there was some bad God who created the bad things. Augustine eventually came to see that this was not a good theory, but he needed to have a different and a better understanding of evil. So the idea is to grasp that evil is not a thing in the way that goodness is a thing. And I don't mean just that it's not a substance. It's not a property in the way that... Evil is not a property in the way that goodness is a property. Evil is not a reality in the way that goodness is a reality. Evil is not a thing or a property of a thing. Evil is a lack of what should be there. So the, the technical word usually used here is a privation. It's a lack of something that's supposed to, be some, to, supposed to be there. So, you know, think of what you're deprived of, right? So it's a privation. When a dog is crippled, that's bad. That's an evil. But the evil isn't a property that the dog has. Instead, we have a case of evil because the dog lacks some property that it should have. Scampering ability or whatever. Dogs are supposed to be able to walk when they can't. That's bad, that's an evil, and the evilness lies precisely in their inability to do something that they're supposed to be able to do. So badness isn't a thing or a property on a par with goodness, except that it's bad. Instead, badness isn't a thing at all. It's not a reality at all. It's a lack of a thing, a lack of a reality, a reality that's supposed to be there. So evil is real. It's not an illusion but it's damage or lack. To say that something is bad is to say that it is marred or deficient in some way compared to what it's supposed to be like. And to... Okay, so that's... Yeah, good. And now we're shifting here. So to say this leads to the third topic of this session. If evil is a lack then goodness is fulfillment, or full actuality. Think of a squirrel that has a bushy tail and a sleek coat and that prances agilely from branch to bird feeder and back to the branch again. (laughs) This squirrel is doing a really good job of actualizing squirrel nature. Squirrel nature is a potency, a potency to be and to live in a certain way, and this Healthy, active squirrel is actualizing that potency to a very serious extent. It is a fulfilled squirrel. Goodness is fulfillment or actualization. Now you might ask, fulfillment or actualization of what? And the answer is, of the squirrel's nature. Of course the squirrel doesn't actualize every imaginable potentiality. It doesn't swim or fly or do calculus. It actualizes the potencies that belong to it according to its kind. And now you can see how Aquinas connects goodness to the natures of things. Each thing has a nature. That nature involves a set of potentialities. Potentialities to exist and operate in various ways. If a thing is able to exist and operate in a fashion that actualizes those potentialities, then it is existing and operating in a good way. If it cannot do this, if it is damaged or thwarted somehow, then evil has befallen it. It is in a bad way. And to issue a reminder of a terminological point made earlier, there is no need to think of this as being a moral point. A squirrel who can't bury nuts will not do a good job of being a squirrel. It will do a bad job. But this is not a sin on the squirrel's part. Likewise, if you have the wrong number of toes, as one of my children did when he was born, then your foot isn't as good as it should be. But this isn't a form of wickedness. Goodness or badness, goodness or evil, need not carry any moral connotations. I will bring up the question of morality later. But for now, there's no need to think along those lines. And there are many reasons not to. Let's keep developing this idea of goodness as actualization or fulfillment. There are two senses in which we might say that certain activities are good for a squirrel. The first is the most obvious. And we can call it the instrumental sense. It's good for squirrels to bury nuts because later they will have something to eat. In other words, the burying of the nuts is useful, it's instrumental to something else, something later on. This is a totally legitimate sense of goodness, and many things are good in this sense. But there is another sense, less obvious perhaps, in which certain activities might be said to be good for a squirrel. A squirrel's activity might be good just because, well, That's part of living a fulfilled squirrel life. It's the squirrel thing to do, regardless of how useful it might be for something else. In short, some activity or operation on a squirrel's part might be good not merely because it's useful, but in what we can call a constitutive sense. It helps to constitute or make up a good squirrel life. Both of these senses of goodness are important. In fact, without the second one, the first one is lost. The first one was the instrumental sense. But something can be good in an instrumental sense only if the thing it's an instrument for is itself good. A baseball bat is good, but only because hitting a baseball is good. A torture machine might be effective. But assuming that torture is bad, then an instrument of torture isn't good. It gets the job done, yes. But the job it gets done is the wrong job. So it's better not to call it good. In short, then, while the instrumental sense of good might be the most obvious sense, it's not the most basic sense. The most basic sense is the constitutive sense, and without it, the instrumental sense loses its force. All of this is a way of talking about teleology. This word comes from the Greek word telos, which means an end or a goal. You probably see these words. The telos of a process is what the process is for. Eating, for example, has nutrition as its pro- primary telos, sexual relations have reproduction as their primary telos, and so forth. We can also speak of the telos of an organism in a sort of adapted way. The telos of a squirrel, the goal of its life is to live in a squirrel kind of way. Scampering, scurrying, burying nuts, robbing bird feeders, making baby squirrels, all that stuff. If Aquinas is right, then nature is teleological, generally speaking. It's goal-oriented, not perhaps in the sense that someone has a plan for it. We'll talk about that later. But just in the sense that there are better and worse ways for it to turn out. If you come upon a dead bird and you think, oh, that's sad. Well, you're right. It would have been better for the bird to flourish. Moving now to... Well... Sort of, I've already been on the fourth point, but in another way, I'm gonna come at it in a different angle, it doesn't matter. Something more about goodness and natures. If all this is correct, then there is a close connection between the goodness of a thing and the category or kind that it belongs to. Think about that squirrel again. Is it part of its nature to have a tail? Be careful how you answer. Saying no just seems wrong, doesn't it? Obviously, having a tail is, being part, is part of being a squirrel. It's a part of squirrel nature. It might even be the most glorious part. <laughs> but if you say yes, then that seems like a problem, too. It sounds like you're saying that if a, squirrel, if a particular squirrel doesn't have a tail, then it lacks part of its nature, part of its essence. And that would seem to imply that it's not really a squirrel, which is obviously wrong. Real squirrels sometimes lack tails, either through birth defects or unfortunate encounters with hawks or whatever. So we seem caught between two ideas. On the one hand, a tail is part of what makes a squirrel a squirrel, on the other hand, You don't actually need a tail to be a squirrel. It's hard to see how both of these could be true. There's a way out of this. It involves doubling down on what we've been saying, or maybe just thinking it through to its logical conclusion. There is something normative about natures, and our understanding of natures should include normativity. Instead of saying that a squirrel is a rodent that has a bushy tail, we can say that it's a rodent that is supposed to have a bushy tail, a rodent for which full actualization or flourishing involves having a bushy tail. That will be true for all squirrels, including the ones that don't have tails. They, too, will be the sorts of rodents that should have bushy tails, the sorts of rodents for which having bushy tails is a really great thing. It's just that, sadly, they don't have them. Now, the point isn't the bare idea that having a bushy tail is great. After all, it's not so great to have a bushy tail if you're a fish. I mean, think about it. The point is that having a bushy tail is great for squirrels. And what makes them squirrels is, in part, precisely the fact that for them, having a bushy tail is great. That's to say, part of full actualization. So while not all squirrels actually do have tails, all squirrels squirrels should have tails. All squirrels are subject to the norm that says that having a tail would be good. Being subject to that norm is part of what it means to be a squirrel. So to generalize, for many kinds of beings, what it means to be them is not precisely that they have certain features, but that they are supposed to have certain features. Having those features is part of their fullness or fulfillment or actualization. What's good for something is tied to its very nature. I think that for Aquinas, this sort of claim holds true for every kind of creature, squirrels, but also trees and rocks. Squirrels have a way to live and flourish, a way of being that counts as full actualization for them. Trees have a way to live and flourish, to grow to a certain height, to yield seeds, to bend and not to break, and so on. Even rocks have a way to flourish. But what counts as flourishing for a rock is pretty minimal. If you're a rock, the main thing is to get to your natural place in the universe, which is the center of the universe, That's why every time somebody lets go of a rock, it goes down. It's trying to get to the center of the universe. Okay. I know know what you're thinking. The notion of natural place is not a big part of contemporary science. More generally, it's not clear whether we really should believe in norms governing non-living entities at all. Personally, I'm unsure of this. I'm not convinced that it's stupid, but neither do I claim to be able to work it out into a good theory. So maybe we should just, or here anyway, limit our attention to the living world. At least when we're talking about norms, we're on much safer ground talking about living things than we are talking about the non-living world. So we'll just put it aside with a sort of guilty conscience. <laughs> if you want, you can think of these norms as being a bit like laws, laws that spell out what is supposed to happen for things of a certain nature. The laws for squirrels say that squirrels should have bushy tails. The laws for oak trees say that oak trees should drop acorns, and so on. You might even be tempted to call these laws of nature or natural laws. Aquinas sometimes talks this way a little bit. But he doesn't consider this a central way to use the language of law. That's because squirrels and oak trees lack reason. And therefore, they can't obey the quote unquote laws that govern them. But humans do have reason, and they can obey. So while Aquinas doesn't spend a lot of time calling the norms that govern squirrels and oak trees laws, that is precisely what he calls the natural norms that govern human beings. He calls them natural law. Aquinas actually names no fewer than four types of law. Eternal law is something like God's plan for the universe. Natural law is sort of like God's plan for humans written into their nature. Human laws are what you're probably thinking, the laws that humans make, hopefully in accord with natural law. But, of course, it doesn't always work out that way. And then, finally, divine laws are the specific laws that God lays down through Revelation to govern things we could never figure out by ourselves, such as how God wants to be worshipped, and also to make up for the fact that, apparently, we're not very good at figuring out what the natural law actually is. Let's just focus on natural law because of our nature, certain things are good for us. The most important are the ones having to do with reason, because that's the key elements of human nature. We are rational animals. First, our rationality makes it possible for us to understand what is good for us and what isn't. Second, our rationality makes it possible for us to act freely and thereby to do what's good and avoid what's evil. Third, the things that are good for us involve reasoning itself. Our best activities, the ones that actualize us most fully, are the ones that involve our rational minds. Scholarly inquiry, intelligent conversation with friends, music, soccer, and so on. So when we're talking about natural law, we are talking about using our reason to understand what is a good way to live, and we're talking about using our reason to actually live like that. And finally, we are talking about forms of living that, Im- that themselves involve the use of reason. So last night we talked about the meaning of life. This is the starting like the place where you want to introduce that discussion in Aquinas, right? The, the full actualization of ourselves as rational animals, that's where the what's going to make life meaningful and of course you have to ask what that full actualization really looks like but that's, this is where that belongs. Now you might wonder whether this is the same thing as morality. That's actually a very interesting question. Nowadays we have a special thing called morality and we consider it importantly different from the rest of life We sort of think like this, eating well and getting enough exercise are part of living well, but they aren't part of morality. Whereas not stealing from your boss, that's part of morality. But Aquinas, like other Aristotelians, is not particularly obsessed with this distinction. For him, natural law is concerned with living well in all dimensions. For him, there probably isn't a sharp distinction between moral questions. And other practical questions. You just want to live well. If you look at Aristotle, he talks about all these virtues courage, telling jokes correctly. Like he just goes from one to the other. He doesn't draw a line and say, now we're done with morality, now let's talk. You know, he just never does that. Okay, I was talking about how goodness is related to the natures of things. And that fits pretty well with the metaphysical theme of these three talks. That led me to talking about natural law, which is related to moral questions. You might object that at this point, I definitely have gotten off track, because I'm not talking metaphysics anymore. In one way, yes. Um, I mean, in one way, no. (laughs) I want to say it's not off track, because the whole point of the natural law approach to morality is that morality is not separable from metaphysics. But in another way, I have to admit that I have sort of veered into the realm of morality. Nevertheless, I'm going to keep going a little bit more because the issues are important and interesting. I'll restrict myself to saying just a little bit about the contrast between natural law morality and what is usually called consequentialist morality. It actually ties into the metaphysical remarks that I've been making. So consequentialism is a word coined by the 20th century Catholic philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe. She publishes under G-E-M. So if you want to know how to spell Elizabeth, it's G-E-M. Um, it covers any kind of moral theory that boils morality down to getting the right consequences or results. Now, obviously it's important to try to achieve good consequences. But what makes consequentialism special as an ethical approach is that it says the consequences are the only thing that determine the only thing that determines whether an action is good or not actions are better if they produce better consequences and that's the only criterion it doesn't matter at all what type of action you are performing if in the situation you are in you can bring about the best consequences by digging a hole you should do that If, in the situation you were in, you can bring about the best consequences by giving a philosophy talk, you should do that. And, if, in the situation you are in, you can bring about the best consequences by torturing an innocent person, well, it might not be fun, but that's what you should do. You should always do what brings about the best consequences, regardless of the type of action that it is. Holding, philosophy talking, torture. No type of action is ever automatically wrong. It just depends on the situation. As they say, the end justifies the means. It means the consequences make right or justify whatever you do, whatever you have to do. Now, from a natural law perspective on human action, that's just not good enough. Actions do lead to consequences. And evaluating those consequences is an important part of deciding whether an action is good or not. But consequences aren't everything. Some action types are just bad because they go against what is good for humans. They violate what is constitutive of our good as rational animals. Some examples include killing the innocent or certain sexual acts. Even if you can get amazingly good consequences out of these, you shouldn't do them because just doing them at all is acting in a way that is out of whack with what constitutes the human good. Consequentialism is all about instrumental goodness, but that's not good enough. A final point for this final metaphysics talk. If something exists at all, then it fulfills its nature at least a little bit. That means that everything is good, at least a little bit. But beyond doing the bare minimum, how fully do things fulfill their natures? What is reality's batting average? Aquinas thinks it's actually pretty high. He thinks that most things mostly do a fairly good job of achieving their ends. Now, reading the newspaper might make this seem implausible, because almost everything there is bad news. But of course, also, we all know that that's deceptive. You know what they say, if it bleeds, it leads, right? No one reports that most airplanes land safely, most children get to school without being hit by cars, and so forth. So perhaps Aquinas is right. And perhaps most things that happen are good. On the third hand, it's complicated. Most fish and insects die before reaching maturity, and likewise most oak trees. It's true that almost all the squirrels you see are successful, but maybe that's only because all the unsuccessful squirrels are dead. (laughs) So as I say, it's complicated. But even if you take a moderately pessimistic view, you still might think that things turn out well remarkably often, often enough, that it can't be due to chance. And if you think that, then you will want to ask, what is responsible for this impressive outcome? One thought might be that each thing has an internal explanatory factor that guides it towards a good outcome. Even if there are a lot of failures, there's still a sort of internal guidance system. Teleology, in other words. You might even call that internal guidance system a thing's nature. But here's another thought, perhaps an additional thought, I mean. Perhaps nature's halfway decent batting average is a sign not merely of internal teleological natures, but of intelligence. And since it's clear that there's no intelligence in oak trees or fish or even squirrels, perhaps nature's halfway decent batting average is a sign that some intelligent being other than oaks or fish, is somehow guiding them to their ends. If that makes sense, then it makes sense to wonder whether the goodness of things points to the existence of God. But that's a tough topic, one that we can't discuss here. Instead, we need to arrive at a different sort of end, and a good one, too. The end of this talk. (laughs) Thank you.